Would you turn your Bible, please, to Luke, the 10th chapter? Luke, chapter 10. And we had announced in the bulletin the message tonight would be the power of his deity, the power of Christ's deity. But I feel impressed tonight to speak on the subject, why evangelism? Why revival? Why this thing of going and going and going in the name of Jesus to reach the lost? What motivates these missionaries to go out and give up all they would have here to serve Jesus in a different culture, different land. What motivates men to go into full-time evangelism and to serve Christ as do Brother Carl Miller and Brother Gordon and Dolphus Price and other great men of God who are in evangelism? And what is it that needs to motivate us if we're to be a soul-winning church and a people God can use to see people saved. So please pray with me tonight as I try to share from what I believe is God's message in the book. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the privilege of prayer. We pray that tonight the Spirit of God will move across our heartstrings. We thank Thee for what we have already experienced in this great music. And now may thy spirit move upon our hearts and motivate each one of us to do God's first work. O oh, Spirit of God, draw the net. If there's a one person here tonight who is not saved, may he come to Jesus. And may all of us together just love you more, be more committed to your commission. In Jesus' name, amen. In Luke chapter 10, after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two by two before him, before his face, into every city and place where he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. I send you forth as lambs among wolves. So many times we read the pages of the New Testament and we read the commission given to the apostles those 12 who worked with Jesus and lived with Jesus and ate with Jesus and slept with Jesus and prayed with Jesus for three years. And we remember that he sent them out. But sometimes we overlook the focus Jesus gave on others. And in this particular passage, he said he chose other 70 he sent these other 70. That is, in addition to the original 12, he sent 70 others out. 
Some have wondered if this passage is related to that passage in the Old Testament where Moses chose 70 to help him in serving the people of Israel. At any rate, Jesus sent these 70 out. And his commission was simply this, the harvest is great, but the laborers are so few. And then he said, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And he gave a detailed account in the day in the scriptures that follow as to how they were to react and what was to be their characteristics and their lifestyle and what they were to accomplish and what they were to do. But the major thing we need to notice is that Jesus told them to go. And he said, into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same city, even the very dust of your city, which clingeth to us, we do wipe off against you, notwithstanding, be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near unto you. As we study the pages of the New Testament, and the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus, we become more and more impressed with the sweeping scope of the task of evangelism. This which we call evangelism is not simply exclusively the initial experience of conversion or the initial experience of soul winning or salvation. Evangelism includes the wide scope of making disciples, conviction, surrender, church membership, growth toward maturity until the evangelized become flaming evangels in the hand of God. There's one supreme business of the church, just one. Just one. And you read the pages of the New Testament carefully and you can't escape this. The one compelling motive that left, led Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth was to win people to heaven. To pluck men as brands from the burning. Amen. To gather a bouquet for the master, if you will. To go into a world darkened by sin and turn some lights on, glorious gospel lights that could beckon men home. But this task of evangelism needs to be understood as to what it really is. Evangelism includes missions which is soul winning at home and to the ends of the earth. Missions doesn't mean just going to Costa Rica or Japan or Africa. Nor does missions include just going to the mountains or Texas or Mexico. This task of missions includes going to the next door neighbor. It includes going all over the city of Bowling Green and across Warren County and the state and the nation and to the ends of the earth. This is the reason Jesus said, ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in, some, and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. It was a commitment and a, and a commission given in simultaneous effect. 
They were not necessarily to win everybody in Jerusalem before we go to Judea, nor everybody in Judea before we go to Samaria, or everybody in Samaria before we go to the ends of the earth. Nor are we to take care of the ends of the earth before we take care of Judea and Jerusalem. We're to do it all at one time. It's a great task of global proportions. And there's a place of responsibility for every one of us. And it is God's plan that the evangelized become flaming evangels in missions. Evangelism also includes stewardship, the training of the whole personality to be at our very maximum for Christ. This is the reason for training union, to train in Christian service. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The task of evangelism is not complete until we have trained ourselves to be at our maximum for Christ. It ought not to be necessary to badger people and plead with people and urge people to be in training in, to be in the college department or the high school department or the adult work or the primary, the preschool or somewhere else. We ought to want to be there because we've been changed. Our heart has been changed and we realize we need all the training we can get. I believe God wants us to qualify ourselves. When God called me to preach, I was raw material. And oh, I knew how raw material I was. And I had, a, I had quite a battle with God over the rawness of my material. I said, Lord, I can't talk in public and I'm scared to say anything in front of people and I don't know whether I can do this and I can't do that. And I'd, finally, some dear precious person showed me about Moses and what Moses had said to God. And I read that over and over and over again. I thought, well, I tell you, I never knew anybody else felt like I do. And so I got on my knees before God and I said, God, I want to promise you that I'll do everything I can to train, to equip myself to be what you want me to be. So while I was in college, that's when I surrendered my life to the Lord's will. And the question after I surrendered, that my first year in college, I almost dropped out of school. I wanted to just quit. I became, I had an awful attitude and I had not yielded my life to the will of God. But after I put my life on the line for God, there was no question about my second, third, or fourth year of college. And there was not a question. I didn't have to decide, let me see, should I go to the seminary or should I not go to the seminary? Brother, I knew I needed it. I knew I needed it. And when I got out of college, I made a beeline for the seminary. And I committed myself to believe the Word of God. And I said, Lord, I don't care what I meet, where I meet it, whatever. I'm going to believe your Word, just your simple Word of God, but I need all the training I can get. Now, my friend, when you get saved, you've not arrived. Somebody said it's better to travel than to arrive. You may be saved and on your way to heaven, but God did not save you as a fire insurance policy against hell. He saved you to save others. He saved you to win others, to tell that wonderful old, old story to others. And if you already know perfectly how to do it, and you're out at it, 
And you can do what one preacher told me. I think Brother Miller told me he wins four out of every five he talks with. And you can already do that. Maybe you don't need training union. Maybe you don't need to train anymore. But I don't, I don't have that good of a plan. I don't have that good of a, a, an average. And I need all the training that I can get. You know, I've never been to a soul winning conference that I didn't get something that helped me win other people to Jesus. And I believe we need to train and to grow in Christ-likeness and service and missions and expose ourselves to all the things we can. I thank God for Brother Joel that showed us those slides last Sunday night and whetted our appetite to see the work in Liberia go forward. I thank God for Tack and Lana and the way they've shared with us out of the overflow of their soul to see missions accomplished and souls won in Japan. And beloved, we need to do the same thing here in this city. The evangelized becoming flaming evangels. We need an anchoring program that will anchor us in Christ going on with Jesus. Stewardship responsibilities include not only our total personality on the altar, but our time and talents and everything we have given to God. I thank the Lord for our precious choir, for those who practice in the handbells and those who practice in the young believers and all those who practice their solos and they do all the things they've got. God's given them some music ability and they've placed it at the disposal of God. Now you see, there are a lot of reactions we can have. We can say, well, I'll tell you, I don't like some of the people that sing in that choir or sing in that group, or I don't feel very comfortable singing with them, and so we can withdraw ourselves from God's work. But that isn't what God wants. He wants us to place ourselves where the work of God is going on, train ourselves, equip ourselves. Now, I did a strange thing when I was in the seminary. I don't have a very good voice, but I wanted to train myself every way I possibly could. So I got in the oratorio society. And I sang music that was way, way above me and beyond me. I can't even remember all the words. Some of it was in Latin and some of it was in other kinds of languages. But I want to tell you, God used every minute of it to bless my soul and prepare me for something later And I believe we need to go through all the doors that open, get involved in all the things. When I was in college, I got into an oratory, not oratorical, not music, but speaking society, and got into some oratory contests to to ask God to help whet my appetite to dig in and know how to speak and to get the message across to people. Listen, we've got raw material, but we need to have it developed and, and challenge it to be what God wants it to be for His glory and honor. Why? Not so we can be on display, not so we, so we can put on a good show, but so we can win precious people to the Lord Jesus Christ and snatch men as brands from the burning. That's God's plan. Jesus said, I send you out as lambs among wolves. The high calling of evangelism must ever be carried out by a heart that is literally on fire for God. You know, I believe when we give God all we are, and we ask Him to set our heart afire like the choir sang and prayed this morning, and we ask God to do something in our lives and in our hearts that is a fiery thing, God will do it. But we can't give God just a part, but we have to give Him all of our heart. 
And I think that includes everything we are. It includes our talents on the altar. It includes our gifts on the altar. It includes our tithes on the altar. Everything for the Lord. All to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. Now there are four incentives that will lead us into the harvest fields. And I'd like to lay these briefly on our hearts tonight. Four incentives. I wish you would write them down in your heart. Remember them in your mind. And may God use these four incentives to light a fire in our soul to go with Christ after the lost. Number one is the ruin of the soul. The ruin of the soul. Beloved, men's hearts are black in sin. The Bible says man's heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible says in the very beginning, God made man in his own image. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God looked after he had created man in his own image and God said everything was good and it pleased God. And then we flip a couple of pages and we come to that dark Genesis chapter 3. And we find man saying, I don't want God to control me. I want to do what I want to do. And God made us a free moral agent. We're not puppets on a little string. God pulls a string and we jump. God made us in his image. There's something about man that's like God. That's the thing that makes us different from a hog or an elephant or a cat or a dog. You and I are body, soul, and spirit. Now a dog and a cat have a body. And they have self-consciousness, which some equate as the soul. That's the reason in the Old Testament, the scripture even speaks of all the animals and so on that a certain man had and all of his possessions and all of his family and children, all of his souls were so many. But I want to tell you, an elephant and a hog and a dog don't have a spirit. They don't have a God consciousness. You and I are made in the very image of God. And Genesis chapter 3 says that very image of God gave us the ability to say yes, to say no, to take matters in our own hands, and if we wanted to, to rebel against God. And that's exactly what happened. Man rebelled against God. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I see this tree over here, and if I want to take of the fruit of that tree, I'll do it. Now, she may not have said it that way. She was under, under dire temptation from Satan, and Satan does that, and he's never stopped doing that, offering the forbidden fruit to mankind. And over and over again through the years, we have accepted it. Man is a sinner. Now we're a sinner, not in the Romanish concept. Augustine and the Roman church held that when Adam sinned, everyone who was ever to be born in the world were present in Adam's body. And in that sense, we were all guilty of taking the forbidden fruit. The only hope, let the church say some holy rites over the babe at birth, sprinkle some holy water and everything will be okay. That's not what the Bible means about the ruin of the soul. Nor is it the sense in which the modern philosophers tell us that every man is basically a saint, that all he needs is a chance. There's such a spark of good within that all is needed is a fan of good environment and the best will blossom like a rose. But the Bible says that man 
has been ruined in the fall. That every faculty of man's ability to come back to God has been marred so that man cannot by his own bootstraps, bootstraps bring himself back to God. It is impossible for us to come to God except God's Holy Spirit take the initiative. And friend, that's where you and I come in. Please believe me. If you don't believe me, search the Scriptures yourselves. Matter of fact, I'd rather you search the Scriptures than to believe me. Search the New Testament and see if you can find one place where an angel told somebody how to be saved. Or where a windstorm told somebody how to be saved. Or where God just sort of blew through the air and the man got the message. No. The only way the ruined, poor, lost sinners of this world can ever get the message of the glorious gospel of Christ is through a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a teenager, ablaze with the fire of God in his soul going out to say, God loves you. You see, God's message has to come through us. And that's the reason the missionaries go. And that's the reason these men pour themselves into evangelism and go and go and are gone day and night and out in the fields. And that's the reason bus pastors go and bus drivers go and some of these bus mechanics work long in the night and spend spare hours trying to get the buses to go so we can go out in the byways and highways of the city and bring people to Jesus. And that's the reason people give their money to keep that going. This is the reason God's will and plan is for every one of us to go with the glorious gospel. Why? Because men and women and boys and girls are ruined by the fall and are in sin and cannot bring themselves to God. You know, if we could ever get that concept through to our hearts, it would revolutionize our thinking. Man is totally unable to deliver himself from the power of sin. Without the help of God, man becomes worse and worse. He is sinking deeper and deeper into sin. In Psalm 51, 5, in sin did my mother conceive me. In Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? In Ephesians 2, 3, we are by nature the children of wrath. Secondly, the reason that we must go, the reason for evangelism, the reason for revival, the reason for missions, the reason for Sunday school and training union and bus ministry and all the other things we do, the reason is not only the ruin of the soul, but the reign of sin. Sin is reigning in men's lives. Not only is the soul ruined by sin, but sin is reigning in the lives of men today. In Romans chapter 6, the Bible tells us that we're not to let sin reign in our mortal body. Now this implies that sin apparently does reign in the mortal body. But the scripture says, you are not under the law, but under grace. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion or reigning power over you because you've been loosed from sin. The only way men can ever accomplish living 
without the reign of sin, tearing him down, 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 and dragging him to a devil's hell is for that reign to be canceled by the blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, Cain sold out to sin. Cain's generation so lived in sin that in Genesis 6, the Bible says God looked over the balconies of heaven and saw that the imaginations and the thoughts of man were only evil continually. And it repented God that he had made man. Samson is the classic example of a man who was bound by sin. You remember the story he went down and put his life on the line as he, let, as he lay in the lap of wicked Delilah. And that little unscrupulous woman put her bejeweled hands all over him and she said, tell me wherein lies your strength. And he told her two or three things. And you remember the story, none of those things was true. And then she said, but look, Samson, if you really love me, if you really love me, and the devil's been telling girls that and guys that ever since, if you really love me, do it. If you really love me, tell me the strength of your life, the secret of your strength. And in that moment of weakness, ruined by sin, and now sin reigning in his body, and with all the passions and the lusts thumping away in his heart. He told her all his heart. And she cut his hair, and his strength was gone. That's what sin does. According to J. Edgar Hoover, there is one major crime every four seconds. There is for every one dollar given to churches, we spend ten dollars on crimes. Juvenile delinquency is again on the upswing. And Henry Richet, in his book, American Youth in Trouble, said this, the main cause of juvenile delinquency is the absence of religion. He says, and I quote, we speak of the red peril and the yellow peril dangers on the outside when the most insidious and devastating peril lies inside the United States, rising from the godlessness in the training of so many of the nation's youth, their lack of spiritual nourishment, their ignorance of the Bible truth, the abject void of prayer in their lives. One out of every 16 persons in the United States has been arrested and fingerprinted. One family out of every 19 was affected by crime in some manner. Money has become America's God. The reign of sin. Money has become America's God. Somebody wrote, France has her lily. England has her rose. Ireland has her shamrock, as everybody knows. Scotland has her thistle. On every down and hill, but the emblem of America is a $1 bill. And this has become our God. And it's another evidence of the reign of sin. Because the Word of God says in the Decalogue, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You think of the man given over to the alcohol problem. The woman covering her fears and sin with narcotics and drugs just to prop herself up. 
Christians are swapping Christ standards for the standards of the world, flinging to the high winds the admonition of John, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world passes away. All these are testimonies to the reign of sin. That's the reason we must go. And beloved, if our God is a dollar bill, we can't go very well till we get that settled. If we're on pop pills and drugs and we have to pop ourselves up, prop ourselves up on one morning and, and then take some sleeping pills to get to sleep and the next morning prop ourselves or wide awake on some more pills and so on, then we need to get some settlement to that. And I'm not making light of that. I'm not making fun of it. My heart goes out. Some of the greatest people I know have allowed themselves to get into a situation like this because they forgot that we live in psychological cycles. My dear friend, God didn't make us so we're going to be on cloud nine all the time. There are going to be some dark, dreary, rainy days. I wish we could live up here all the time. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the only time you can do that, the only way you could do that is to take drugs all the time. There are going to be some days way down here in the valley. That's the reason the songwriter said, there are days so dark that I seek in vain for the face of my friend divine. Amen. That was a Christian that wrote that. You see, God didn't ever tell us that we're going to always be up here. He said there are cycles. And some people are scared of those valleys. And they don't want to go down in the valley. They don't want to be down here where they feel terrible and they just flop themselves down and give up to their feelings. God doesn't want us to live like that. He does not want us to live under the circumstances, but on top of them, ever triumphing over them, not under them. That's the reason we ought to go when we feel like it and go when we don't feel like it. We ought to go to church when we feel like it and go when we don't feel like it. You get up and go to work tomorrow morning whether you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. You go soul winning whether you feel like it when you don't feel like it. You read your Bible when you feel like it and you don't feel like it. You, you, you pray when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. As a matter of fact, the time you really need to pray is when you don't feel like it. And all of this is just a testimony to the reign of sin. Sin has taken such a huge toll in our lives. This is the reason we need to go. Now in the light of this, we need to notice the requirements for his disciples. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke puts it, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. That means reject himself. That means deny not things, but deny Himself. That is, he is no longer on the throne. It's not a matter of what will pamper me and make me feel good. But Lord, what do you want? That's what that verse means. That scripture is not saying deny yourself uh, lemonade today and orange juice tomorrow and deny yourself this today and this tomorrow and so on like you do in Lent. That scripture says deny yourself. That is, self is no longer on the throne. The question is not whether this is what I want, but what does God want? These are the requirements for discipleship. And if we're going to do the task that God's called us to do, we need to remember that Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. In Acts 1.8, 
Ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. This task will call for commitment. D.L. Moody, when he was a young man, went to England. He went to visit Charles Spurgeon's church in London. I had the thrill of a lifetime going to that old church in London, walking up the old steps that Spurgeon had walked up many, many times, seeing those old columns that stand there, the front of the church that he had seen, and, and going through the doors that he had gone through. Now the building on the inside burned after he died, and it's not the original building, but it was a thrill to just be where he used to be. And I thought of D.L. Moody going into that building, going through those doors, and going up and sitting way up in a balcony, and he heard Henry Morehouse preach. And then he heard Henry Valley preach. And Mr. Valley said one day, the world has yet to see what God can do in and with and through and for a person that is totally yielded to the control of God's Spirit. And Moody said, I left that church by myself. I walked down the steps and walked down the street and kept going over my mind. God has yet to see, the world has yet to see what God can do with and through and in and for a man totally yielded to Christ. And he said, said, Lord, that man didn't say a special man with special gifts and special education. He just said any man. And Moody said, Lord, by the grace of God, I want to be that man. He came back to America, and he just believed God. He began to put all of his time in the work of the Lord. Day after day after day after day after day, he plugged away. He didn't have much education. He, he, was, he, he was somebody that slew the king's English. And he, they, they tell us that he couldn't pronounce words that had more than two syllables. He called Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he called Joshua, Joshua. And, he, and he, he just didn't know how to use all those words. He went to Boston and preached in the great Park Street Church and, and treated the king's English so ugly and so mean and, and, and so on and just was so careless because he didn't know any better that some of the people out there punched each other and, and they talked what kind of an ignoramus have we got until he got about halfway through the sermon and they forgot all that and they got lost in the wonder of the Holy Spirit and revival broke out in that staid formal church in Park Street in Boston and God began to save souls. And then Moody said one day he got alone with God and he said, Lord, by the grace of God, I want to promise you that I will make it my business to speak to one soul about Jesus every day, every day. He went to bed one night. He had had a busy, busy day in all kinds of paperwork and office work and all kinds of things and planning and promotions. And, and, and as he tried to go to sleep, he tossed and he turned and he said, Lord, what's wrong? And then the thought came, I haven't spoken to anybody about that Jesus today. And he got up late in the night and went out, put his clothes on, went out on the street. And he found a man walking across the bridge, the Chicago River Bridge. He just walked up to that man and he said, Sir, are you a Christian? And that man said, That's none of your business. And Moody said, Oh, sir, it is my business. And he turned and walked back to his place. He went to, tried to go to sleep and went on to sleep. And the story goes that later in the night, there was a knock at his door. And 
when he opened the door, there was that man. And he said, you're a strange person. He said, could I come in and talk to you? He said, earlier tonight, I was out there on that bridge and I was planning to plunge in the river and commit suicide. And you came up to me and asked me if I were a Christian and I rudely told you it was none of your business. And then he said, but the way you said it, that it was your business, somehow convinced me that it was. And when I saw you walk away in the night, something in my heart said, maybe there's a chance, maybe there's something more to life. And he said, I followed you. And it took me until now to get up the nerve to knock on your door. Could you tell me how to be a Christian? Moody went into the Lord that night. Oh, listen, we, if we're going to be what God wants, we need the commitment to go in Jesus' name, a commitment to go when we feel like it, a commitment to go when we don't feel like it, but to go with Christ after the lost. Oh, God, help us to do it. We need the compassion. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, Paul said. And we need the conviction to speak at all times, wherever we are, talk to people about Jesus. Dr. Lee tells the story of being in a plane. He was leaving Los Angeles to come back to Memphis. And they were 2,100 feet in the air. It was lunchtime and the little stewardess came by to give him lunch. He was eating his lunch. She said, up, she said to him, are you a preacher? He said, yeah, I'm a preacher. She said, you must be a Methodist preacher. He said, why do you think I'm a Methodist preacher? He said, well, you're eating fried chicken like a Methodist preacher. He said, honey, Baptists were eating fried chicken 1,800 years before they ever heard of a Methodist. <laughs> he said, have you heard of that most deadly poison? She said, no, what is it? What you call it? He said, it's the airplane poison. One drop will kill you. And with that, he moved into her heart. And she who left Los Angeles without her faith in Jesus landed in Memphis, a child of God on her way to heaven. Amen. We need to be soul conscious, reaching people wherever they are for Christ, telling them that Jesus is the answer. Christ is the answer. And last of all, the incentive to win people to Christ is the return of the Savior. The Lord Jesus is coming again. I don't know when. I expect him tonight before this service is over. I believe he may come this next week if he doesn't come tonight. I don't know the hour, but the Bible says in Revelation 1, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us a kingdom of priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also who pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming. And beloved, the incentive, the holy incentive that leads us to revival, that leads us to evangelism, that leads us as a church to kindle fires of revival and evangelism that will reach out to the ends of the earth is simply, are simply these. We do not know how long we've got. I don't know how long we have. We may have a hundred years. We may have a thousand years. My frank opinion is I question that seriously. Charles Wilson has written 
uh, Charles Taylor, I'm sorry, Charles Taylor has written a book called The Third World War. And in that book, he outlines all of the things that are going on in our world. And Mr. Taylor comes up with the conclusion that everything that should be fulfilled from the scriptural standpoint before the rapture of the church has already been accomplished. And that the Third World War will be that conflagration that takes place as the Antichrist reveals himself for what he is, unveils himself according to Revelation chapter 6. He assumes power in a bloodless coup. All the world acknowledges him. And then soon you see the red horse and the black horse and the pale horse symbolizing war and tyranny and uh, uh, famine and pestilence and confusion coming across the earth. And he says, this is, and this is equated with what will happen in Revelation chapters 6 and 8 and Revelation 17 when this world is turned loose in a great conflagration between Russia and America and we're all fighting over Jerusalem and over Palestine. He says that will be the third world war and his opinion is, and it's a very studied opinion, that it takes place during the tribulation. And he, he suggests that its time is very, very close. Now I know that's a man's opinion, but as you study the scriptures and you look carefully into the word of God, the word reveals that before the end comes, the Jews will be gathering back to Palestine that there will be a falling away, that the love of many will wax cold, that there will be deceit, and many will rise and saying, I'm the Messiah. All of those things are occurring right now. And one of the final signs is in Matthew 24, 14, where it says, the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached for a witness to all the nations. And that is occurring right now. All the nations of the world.